Here we are at Potted Market. Schools That Can partners with schools to deliver engaging education to employment content that connects teachers and students to the world of work. Their programs provide schools with historically marginalized students with the capacity to prepare them for careers or college, and all of their programming builds direct connections between students, educators, and volunteers from a variety of professional fields. Every year for the past four years, Schools That Can has held its design challenge, which brings together middle schoolers, teachers, corporate executives, and community leaders to engage in a real-world design experience. That is, transforming urban public school buildings into smart, green, and efficient structures. The project is a collaboration with the Panasonic Foundation and allows students to research the current functionalities of their school buildings and create a concept and a design plan for a smart, green school using renewable energy. Here to talk about Schools That Can and this year's design challenge is Aaron Sweeney, Executive Director of the Newark branch of Schools That Can. Aaron has a deep and impressive background. After college, she served as a U.S. Foreign Service Officer and a Pickering Foreign Affairs Fellow in Nigeria, Bolivia, New York, Tanzania, Germany, and Washington, D.C. She also worked as a Director of Strategic Initiatives at St. Benedict's Prep here in Newark. She has a Master's in Public Policy from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and a Master in American Studies from Rutgers, Newark, and is currently studying for her JD at Rutgers School of Law in Newark. Aside from that, Erin uh, is a friend I've known for almost five years now, which is uh, pretty amazing. Um, I first remember meeting you back in summer of 2016. Uh, it was actually a surprise meeting, but I won't go into that. <laughs> um, but uh, my first question to you, Erin, is how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm excited. Um, excited to be here and excited to talk about the work that we're doing. Yeah. So if you don't mind, let's start off with just Schools That Can in general. Could you just sort of explain a little more deeply about what what is Schools That Can and what do they do? Sure. Um, schools That Can has been around almost, you know, 15, almost 20 years. And it started as an initiative by school leaders, actually. There were school leaders from district charter and independent schools in Newark and in other cities who really felt um, siloed. You know, they felt like it, it was pointless for them to be working just within their sectors, considering that they literally had each other's kids. You know, you'd have a student who started perhaps in a district school and switched to a charter or switched to an independent school. Um, and so they were all facing the same challenges, but they wanted to start working more collaboratively together. And that's how the organization started. It was all volunteer-led for many years um, until probably about eight years ago when the organization started to hire people to start coordinating that. Um, as more and more schools wanted to get involved, it was just too much for a school leader who's also you know, running a school to put together these, these meetings for school leaders to get together and talk about these things. So that's how the organization really got started. Over the last six years, five, six years, we've really focused the, the work on this education to employment gap issue. Um, and that came about because you know, for a long time, when the, when the schools would get together to talk about issues, they'd talk about anything. You know, they talk, they talk about things that had to do with curriculum. They, you know, they talk about all sorts of topics, but they, they really decided about five, six years ago, it was time to specify. It was time to really hone in on where is the one area that schools in every city in the country are really struggling with. And ultimately what schools all agreed on was a, was a major challenge, was this, this, this gap between what we teach in our schools and what we need students to know by the time they graduate to be successful, whether they go to college or straight into careers. And so that's where we really come in 
to develop programming and work with schools hand in hand to figure out how do we help you better prepare your students for success after they graduate from the from the school system. Yeah. So when we, when we talk about that gap you mentioned, um, yeah. what are the skills that uh, these students are often missing when they leave, um, you know, secondary education right. and Newark? Yeah, I think, and, and it's um, it's Newark, and it's, it's probably all of the cities mm-hmm. that we operated, but I think what we see the most, so there's, there's two sides to this, right? I mean, there's technical skills, which most people would notice that, you know, writing is not taught the same way it used to be taught. You know, we notice a lot of students are graduating high school, um, and their writing skills are, are a little weak, their math skills might be a little weak. So there's the technical skills, and, you know, we don't, we don't, focus as much on like the English and the math skills themselves, although we do have programs related to both that we help schools with in expanding interests students might have in careers that involve those skills and trying to help schools develop some of those skills earlier, especially in math, um, so that students are not narrowed in their options, their career options later on. Um, so, So there's the technical side. And there's also on the technical side, there's like specific career skills that if students are planning to go into, say, um, you know, manufacturing or healthcare or, you know, different types of industries, there's skills they can start developing in high school. And we help schools um, with those. But there's the, the other side of it, which I think is more universal, no matter what a student wants to do in their future or even while they're still in high school. It's those, you know, there's no good term for it. Some people call it soft skills, 24. 20- 21st century skills, um, I don't know, career skills, but it's those those skills like communication, teamwork, um, showing up on time, being ready to work, you know, those types of basic skills you need to be successful in any workplace that seem to be really lacking for a lot of students. And again, this isn't even just city, you know, Newark students. We see this with suburban students and <laughs> students all across the country um, who just really struggle with those basic, you know, interaction skills. And so that's where we focus a lot of our effort. Yeah, um, that's, it's kind of interesting. There's always that big debate about, you know, how can high schools be best preparing their students and all schools for that right. matter, not just high schools. Right. Um and it's always very interesting because there's always that, like you said, that focus on English and math skills and mm-hmm. not so much on those other skills. And my question is, schools that can, how do you impart those skills? Is it just through seminars? Is it through internships? Like, how, how, what does that process look like? So it's a, yeah, it's a variety of different programs. And in some ways, we try to scaffold it. So when we're working with elementary and middle schools, um, our programs tend to focus more on the teachers, um, working with teachers on how do we help them develop skills that they can bring into the classroom to infuse uh, more of these these kind of Um, you know, creative thinking, problem-solving teamwork skills in their classes. You know, this switch towards a focus on test prep. You know, I think we've all seen it where, like, schools, it's all about the standardized tests. It's all about the end-of-year testing. And so what's been eliminated from a lot of classrooms is, like, all all those types of hands-on projects that we used to have, you know, group projects and building things and finding space for students to try new things together and fail and be able to fail safely so that they can keep being curious and keep um, developing the persistence to try to solve challenges. And so we focus on, in the in the K through 8 space, we're really focused on helping schools and teachers 
with how they can infuse more of these types of design challenges into their classrooms that um, help students practice in a safe way how to design um, and, and address real challenges in, the, in their communities in teams. So that's, you know, the design challenge is a great example of that. I think when we get to the high school level, that's when we really start focusing more on the students. Um, more specifically, we work with cohorts of students in various high schools on resume building, you know, um, interview skills, job experiences. They get to, well, when we're in person, they get mm-hmm. to do one-day job shadows at different sites throughout the city that they're interested in. Um, right now, we're, we're kind of doing a virtual version of that where they get to connect with professionals in a career they're interested in. But we combine that with the, with the city's summer youth employment program uh, with Marsha Armstrong and her team at the city so that students, after they've completed our program, and after they've had those career experiences, can then continue on into a paid internship uh, through the city or through other other opportunities that exist. The idea being, let's we don't want this to be a one-off. We don't want them to say, oh, well, that was really fun for that one day. We want them to see this as the beginning of that career exploration so that by the time they're graduating high school, they've had real career experience, they've built their network, they know people, you know, and they can start really building building on that. Um, the other thing I'll just mention that we do with high school is we work with um, the district, with the Newark Board of Education, their career and technical education office. So I, I know growing up, we used to call what's, what's now called career and technical education or CTE, it used to be called vocational, mm-hmm. right? And it was like the, the students who went and got, went to study welding or carpentry or cosmetology and um, it had a stigma, I think, for a long time of people thinking, oh, those are the kids who are not going to college. And there's been a shift, thank goodness there's been this shift over the last 15, 20 years towards seeing it more as you know, not, an, not an either or, but a, an and. So vocational, which is now CTE programs, have become programs to help any student who's interested in various types of careers gain those technical skills in addition to their academic skills so they can graduate high school either with some kind of certification that allows them to immediately get employment or a certification, but then they go on to college. So you're seeing CTE programs in the traditional categories like cosmetology and carpentry, but also in like pre-med, pre-law, um, engineering, you know, things where students do continue often to go to college. And so we are helping this, the district with every single one of their CTE programs. There's about 30, 35 of them um, to help them bring in industry leaders, bring in externships and internships and guest speakers and all of those different elements that help make the program very robust and help expose students to as many people in those careers and experiences in those careers as possible before they graduate. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the vocational system because, um, A, I have a direct experience with that. My my brother graduated from a, what was called a vocational high school here. Oh. It's actually technically not in Newark. It's in Bloom. Uh, 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 this is like a bit of inside baseball, but in Essex County, right, the technical schools are largely run by the county for some right. weird reason. Um, and he got a degree in, uh, or not a degree, he got the the certification in welding, but then he went on to a private liberal arts college. But I still, oh, wow. re- I still remember a time of that divide, right? Right. When, when you know, we had a really robust vocational program in the city, but also there was a, uh, there was a stigma of sorts. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, if you, if you went to North Thirteenth or to to Bloomfield Tech or to 
Not so much political and attack. I, yeah, but, but yeah. Sorry, you're saying. Yeah, I know. I was gonna say. I think. I think to some degree that has shifted. Um, you know, I noticed the shift personally probably about ten years ago when I was interviewing for. I went to the University of Chicago for undergrad, and I used to do like the alumni interviews for students applying for college there, and I was getting flooded with students from the Essex County schools of, of technology or from the Bergen schools or the Hudson school. And I started thinking to myself, huh, that's so interesting because growing up, I always thought people who go to tech, you know, who go to the mm. technical schools, they're not going to college. And I started learning that it's, it's really flipped. I mean, that our county schools of technology in, in Essex and in a lot of counties in New Jersey are academically extremely strong and tend to send students to college um, at comparable and sometimes at higher rates and are more competitive than some of the um, district schools. So it's really been a shift, which is exciting. Um, but it also means that in, in Newark, the district um, feels, the, feels that a little bit and is, and is struggling to provide the same level of technical programming that the county schools provide. And I think because there was such a shift for so long towards the, like everyone goes to college, um, there was a disinvestment in mm. not just in Newark, but in a lot of schools throughout the state of like, you know, let's let's not focus on on those programs. The kids who want to do that, they can go to the county schools. And because of that, um, and as the county schools got stronger and stronger, especially academically, um, now now the district schools are saying, oh, how do we bring those programs back? So the, su the superintendent in Newark Public Schools, Roger Leone, has done an incredible job focusing on that, on saying every high school in Newark is going to have career and technical education. Um, and he's worked really hard to establish a theme for every high school so that if you are an eighth grader in Newark and you're applying to high school and you know you want to do health, you know that you're going to apply to you know one of the high schools that has health. So Weequake High School's Allied Health Program or Central High School's Dental Program or Technology High School's Biomedical Program. And, and by doing that, it helps students really identify potential high schools that would match their interests. Of course, like most, <laughs> I think most people listening to this will say, I had no idea what I wanted to do in eighth grade. And you know, and that's true too. And I think there's, there's, there's wiggle room within that program. So even if they join Weequake High School in the health program and they decide, yeah, I don't think I want to do health after all, you know, they're still fine because they're still getting a, a good education and they can still go off and study whatever they want. But just like your brother's experience, what we find is there are a lot of students who do career and technical education, but they don't actually pursue what it is that they studied. But that doesn't mean it wasn't a great experience because through those programs, you're getting a lot of exposure. You're getting a lot of practice on teamwork, you know, trying new things, learning how to struggle with a new concept, working with your hands. You know, you're learning a lot of skills that are applicable in any industry. Um, and I think that's why we see students who do vocational programming or CTE programming really excelling even academically. Yeah, you know, it's really funny because I, you know, my, my, my closest, the closest knowledge of personally I have to any other system aside from the American system is the German system, which is kind of similar yeah. to what you're saying, but very different in the sense that like there is a sense of pride if you go to one of their technical schools, right. but it is the end point. Right. Yeah. From that point on, you, you go into the industry and they have a little more of an artisanal approach to these right. technical schools. And it's always very funny that like in America, there's a lot of pressure to mm -hmm. still go to college after not saying that you shouldn't. But like, you know, I'm, I'm waiting into the sort of larger debate in the country. But you right. go to a technical school and like there's still pressure to be like, well, 
what's the point? You know, where are you going after this? Because you can't possibly end here. And right. this, is, this is not a critique. This is not about schools that can. But I talk about the larger, the larger right. framework that you guys are operating in this very interesting world, where there's still all these countervailing pressures operating around yeah. students. Yeah, and I, and I think it's a little bit. Um, I think it's interesting right now with coronavirus because I think mm. there's even more questioning right now yes. of like, is there a point to college? You know, like you're spending a tremendous amount of money. And now we see that you can do it online. And, you know, there, a lot of students are deferring or they're deciding not to apply. And, you know, at the end of the day, like there are quite a few careers and, and lucrative ones at that that don't require college. And um, and in fact, going to college would be really kind of a waste of money. Now, there's a mm. lot of other benefits to going to college, of course, you know, just four more years or, you know, two or four more years to kind of learn more of those skills, expand your network, you know, um, be exposed to new ideas, try new things. I mean, there's a lot of more social, emotional benefits to college, and I think it's still a great option and something that, you know, all students should be prepared to do if they want to. But I also think, you know, there's new pressures that students are facing with um, unemployment of, of family members, of, you know, other other pressures they're under where you know, that's just not always an option. And sometimes going straight into a pretty great career after graduating from high school with a certificate that allows you to start at a, at a decent salary is is a really great way to go. Um, and a lot of companies will pay for you to go back to school or get other certifications or you can start stacking the certifications. So I think there's just, there's a more, I think there's a bigger willingness now in our country to have a conversation about, you know, the options, post-secondary options that are successful and what success looks like. Right. And I think, you know, it's sort of the way the way I've approached this is I understand all the critiques of college. And I guess I had a unique experience. One of our connections, Aaron, is that we were both uh, we're both. Well, I, I am and you were a part of the Harvard Alumni Executive Board for New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Harvard experience is pretty unique. I think Chicago is actually very similar where the students pretty much run everything. And that's, I think, mm-hmm. one of the advantages to having a system like that where you're on campus, you're running the school newspaper, or in my case, I was on the student government, which issued all the grants for student groups. And I always wonder if that maybe that's the redeeming aspect of the American system. But the problem is a lot of students are not even getting that opportunity because of cost, because of family situations, like you mentioned, or even the COVID crisis itself has put everyone in the same boat. Um, Where we're all, we have to do this remotely. It's, um, yeah, it's really hard to do some of those clubs. It's really hard to have those um, experiences of building movements of, um, you know, getting that leadership experience when everybody's sitting in front of a computer. And I think I think we're really seeing that. Um, I'm I'm doing I'm helping review applications for a scholarship program, and I'm reading high school you know applications and transcripts. And it's funny because you see all these activities, and they all stop in mm-hmm. 2020. You know, and and one of the factors where we're you know, reviewing the applications with is like, did they, how many years have they participated in an activity and did they gain leadership roles over time? And it's kind of hard this year because it's like, you know, they were doing really well in their sport team, but that's not meeting this year, you know, and I, and I feel like we're seeing the impact that COVID's having on students' um, development in their activities, in their personal, social, emotional learning. Um, And I always felt like we already had a problem with this generation Mm. of when they're in person, they're still talking to each other through their phones. And now it's like, oh, God, this is the only way they can talk to each other (laughs) is through technology. (laughs) So what's going to happen? You know, there's part of me that hopes when this is all over 
kids go running to, to embrace each other because they're so lacking in that human contact. I just hope that that urge to, to talk face to face and, and not through technology continues in the future, you know, um, that we come out on this, on the other side of this with people really realizing how important that personal touch is, because I think that's, that comes mm-hmm. back to the work that we do and that the reason I think a lot of students graduating high school or college today are not ready is because they don't know how to communicate with other people. They're so used to communicating through a device and not face-to-face. They don't know how to make eye contact. They don't know how to shake hands. They don't know how to, you know, just do basic communication. And I think that's really telling. So I'm, I'm hoping on the other yeah. side of this, it gets better. The, um, I've actually quoted, I think I've quoted this book on a past episode of the podcast, but there's a great book by Gretchen McCulloch. This is just to push back a little bit um, about, I think there's like a bit of a generational disconnect and I fall right in the middle of that. I kind mm-hmm. of experienced both worlds because I, re- I remember very young an era without like computers existed but like they they were um you know you had to if i wanted to use the internet i had to tell my mom i was going to do it and you know we had to block off the phone line you know that's when Mm -hmm. i was really young but i also grew up in high school where internet just exploded and became there's there's this period from 2000 2007 i think from the the y2k moment to the launch of the Mm -hmm. iphone where the the level of computer literacy just exploded Right. And uh, Gretchen McCulloch writes about this, about like, actually, these kids are very adept at communicating, but it's a form of communication that doesn't work with another generation. Mm. And so there's this kind of disconnect. Uh, like they could communicate to each other actually very effectively through text, through these different media. But when it comes to communicating with the people who actually are in positions of power or who right. control the economy, it, it it's almost like, you know, the, the, the best example of this is putting a period at the end of a text, which has a lot of meaning to a young person. I actually noticed this myself. Oh. Right? But like to an older person, they don't understand that putting a period at the end of a text is a very aggressive move. <laughs> Um, okay. Yeah, I know, but the, no, okay. yeah, and the no, I, no, I know, and this is um, I'll I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. The only reason why I bring this up is to show you the the sort of the world that schools like Canada is operating in, right? Where you have a generation that's uh, uh, lit, um, fluent in a different mm-hmm. world, and you're trying to connect them to the world that you know actually provides right. them with the means to exist. <laughs> Well, it's so good you say this because I had this conversation with our high school intern last week. You know, she, mm. um, I told her, I said, you know, listen, I'm not making you email me your updates because I'm this old Grinch who's like, you have to use email. Mm. I'm doing it because right now the people who are going to be your bosses in the future use email. That's their primary form of communication. And one day your generation will run this world and it could all be through text or it could all be through you know, WhatsApp or whatever you guys are going to use to communicate. But for right now, I have to prepare you for the jobs you're going to get in the coming, you know, couple of years. And I think that's, um, it's very interesting to, to have a high school intern because it helps us like think about how do we best approach the students that we're serving right now. And she's been invaluable for us as we've been trying to um, reach more high school age students through our Instagram so that we can, you know, as we find out about scholarships, as we find out about programs, we can push them out to the students. Um, and so it's, it, you know, she's in some way like our interpreter between the two <laughs> generations, which has been really valuable. But at the end of the day, when we talk to employers, you know, when we're talking to employers, whether they're, you know, Prudential and the Port Authority, or we're talking to like, you know, some small mom and pop, you know, operation, they, the number one complaint we hear from employers and the number one need we need is solid communication. And they are 
you know, when they talk about technological, you know, based communication, they mean email, you know, checking your email and responding to it. And so it's, um, yeah, it's definitely a challenge. But until the employer side changes, I think we still have a valuable, you know, there's a valuable skill that needs to be taught around those types of communication skills. So with with the COVID-19 crisis in full swing at this point, um, and let's put aside the design challenge because we're going to get to that in a few minutes. And we'll yes. talk about the uniqueness of that program under this um, time period. But for your other programming and your other um, offerings, how have you guys adapted to the COVID crisis? And what are the challenges you guys are facing right now? Yeah, it's it's a challenge. I mean, every program we run, we had to adjust. You know, every, every program we run was was based on in-person interaction. And so when when this all happened back in March of last of, of 2020 we um we were in the middle of a program with 250 high school students um they were getting ready to go out for their one day externships and we had them all lined up and we had to cancel everything and we thought you know let's think of how do we mimic the experience that they're losing um as best we can through a virtual environment and that's when we started coming up with these you know virtual career experiences career chats you know opportunities for students to engage at least virtually with an employer um in a career they're interested in i think that the the hardest part of this has been engagement and you know this isn't just mm-hmm. us or other nonprofits but teachers as well have this challenge of you know right now we're running uh our our education to employment gap program the resume work and the and the interview work and we're running this um, all through classrooms. So we log into the WebEx and you often have, you know, 15, 20 students, many of whom don't have their cameras on, they're muted. You're not really sure, are they with us? Are they, you know, are they, are they here? Yeah. And you're asking questions and they might put something in the chat and, or once in a while, you know, un- unmute and ask a question. But it, it really drives home the challenge that teachers are having um, and, you know, a lot of times students don't have their cameras on for very valid reasons. Yep. You know, that they don't want people to see what's behind them or they have people around them or um, or bandwidth issues. I mean, that's a huge issue. Um, if everyone's got their cameras on, it starts freezing for people. But at the end of the day, you know, you start wondering, like, how are, are we getting through to everyone? So I think th- those have been our hardest challenges. Of course, having said that, when we ask them to then submit the resume they've been working on through the workshops, they do, you know, and we mm. see some really quality resumes that obviously indicate they were with us during those workshops. So I think, I think a lot of it is based on on trust um, with the students, and I think too there's this element of, and I say this to my team all the time, like, you know, we can only do what we can do. You know, we're all in this situation together. You do the best you can. You know, will there be students that are in the program, but we never really interact with them? Sure, you know, but there are a lot of students that are very engaged, and we just have to focus on doing the most we can with as many students as we can. And I think teachers are saying the same thing, you know, it, that it's it's hard to reach everybody, but you do the best you can. Um, I think in, in some ways, some of our program work that we need to do that's a little bit more with the faculty and staff and behind the scenes has been um, has been better during COVID in the sense that, you know, when we work with our career and technical education partners at schools, we're running advisory committee meetings. These are meetings of school leaders, teachers, you know, individuals in the school, but it's also all these industry people. So it's uh, people representing companies related to the industry that that 
career and technical education program is about. And when we used to run those in person, it was really hard to get partners to show up because they have to stop their day, drive over to Newark, you know, to whatever site, stay there for a meeting, find, you know, find parking, stay there for a meeting and then drive back. Now that it's virtual, we actually are seeing attendance skyrocket by our partners um, for these partner meetings. And so in some ways, the virtual environment has shifted how some elements of our programming work that I think will stick like these advisory meetings. Um, it's not to say it's not, you know, that we'll always have, everything will always be virtual. I think it is important for industry partners to physically walk in a school and meet the students face-to-face and see the environment and see the resources that the school has or doesn't have. But at the same time, if there's ways to increase involvement by partners in the work world, um, then we'll do that. You know, so I think there's been pros and cons to it. Yeah, it's um, it got there's so much that came up there that I wanted to to, to even just put a pin in. But um, I mean, I think the, the most important thing you brought up was the trust issue, and I think yeah. it's so easy to be cynical with students. And I, I was a high school teacher, and uh, I I know this feeling. But like, I think you're right. We have to put some trust in students. I think there's a we're, a lot of what we constructed is deeply cynical. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, people asking to have your cameras on to show that you're listening. It's just like, you know, maybe they are. <laughs> and you yeah. just you're just not giving them the level of trust. And I think that's true with any intern you have or any student you're working with is the way the best way to engage them is to actually put some trust in them and show that mm-hmm. you have trust in them instead of saying like, you know, show me what you've done all the time, right? Or whatever. Right. right. Um, and then we're not helping them in the real world because no. in the real world, yeah. it should be that your boss does the same, right? That right. they give you room, that they allow you to, as long as the work's getting done and it's a high quality. And so we, we need to mimic in our programs and our schools as much as possible what the work world will look like, again, so that we're best preparing students for the for those experiences. Yeah. I was very lucky as a high school student to have an internship at UMDNJ for two summers mm. at the Department of Psychiatry with Dr. Oh. Cheryl and Kennedy. I'll never forget her. And she put an incredible amount of trust in me <laughs> at 14. Mm. Um, something I'll never forget. She just like threw me in a room once, taught me that like maybe go to a HIPAA seminar, learn the HIPAA rules and said, fix this uh, room uh, full of uh, patient uh, folders and documents. It mm. took me a whole month, but I, I organized and created a system at 14. And I wasn't, I, I don't consider myself a genius at 14. I was like, you know, uh, maybe above average high schooler, but not nothing prodigious about me and the fact that I got that level of trust I think was for me um, the vote of confidence I needed to attack a problem and I feel Mm -hmm. like that's something that you guys do right is is help students meet their you know rise to that level I think yeah and help teachers to allow their Mm -hmm. students to do it because I think um, again, w- going back to this, like, you know, test prep and everything, what we've noticed is that students are always waiting for instructions. You mm-hmm. know, um, I've had interns, even interns from, you know, very prominent um, private schools in, in New Jersey who, you know, need constant direction. You yep. know, I, 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 this is a really dumb example, but I think it's really telling in that we were setting up for an event and we had round tables and long tables and we had round table costs and long table costs. And the intern asked me, do you want me to put the round table costs on the round tables? You know, that level of needing instructions terrifies me because I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, you know, that's the point. Mm. But like the fact that 
they're so afraid to make a mistake, you know, that students may feel like if they do anything different than what the teacher has specifically instructed them to do, it'll be a mistake instead of allowing room for creativity, allowing critical yeah. thinking. And so I think it's a challenge and, and it's not an easy thing necessarily for people to, to give up on, you know, or to give room. Um, but we need to provide those opportunities for students. Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk about the design challenge. So let's just talk in general about it, and then we could get to specifically how this year is going to operate. So sure. w- what is the des- design challenge? Yeah, so the design challenge is, um, I have to admit, it's my favorite day of the year. It was always a one-day program. It was always my favorite day of the year um, because it's it's exciting. It's We bring together a group of middle schoolers from a bunch of different middle schools. We bring together their teachers and we bring together volunteers from the community from different corporations or, or community partners. And we mix them all up into teams. So you have a bunch of middle school students um, working with teachers, working with, with adults from different companies or organizations. And they had in the past, when we did this in person, they'd have one day to solve a challenge. And the challenges in the past were almost always urban planning develop, development related. So we'd have the city of Newark come and make a presentation around a park, say the Mulberry, uh, Mulberry Commons and the new bridge that's going to go over Route 21. Well, not new bridge, but the refurbishment of the existing mm-hmm. bridge. And they would um, present that in the morning to the to the team and say, you know, you have a couple hours to design a 3D model of what that bridge should look like. And it should have a certain couple of things. You need a name for the bridge. You need something educational. You need something interactive or, you know, whatever the challenge was. And the students would then go back to the rooms. They'd have a 3D um base that was created by the team at NJIT, you know, out of wood that they would then have to build off of. And they'd use, you know, Legos and clay and, you know, whatever kinds of supplies we had um, for them. And they'd have a couple of hours to build out this design. So they're, they're working in teams. They're getting their ideas out. They're they're figuring out a system for deciding which ideas they're going to move forward with. Um, and then they're dividing up roles, you know, building out parts of it. Often there's um, a site map that has to go with it. So you have some students working in that. They all have to make a presentation to a bunch of judges at the end. Um, so they're preparing that. By the end of the day, they come back together. Our judges are always individuals somehow related to the project. So you have the landscape architect firm or you have, you know, um, people from the city, other other representatives there who are um, – listening for ideas that they're actually going to implement into the into the final product. So the students he- know that they're being heard. They know that this is not a hypothetical. This is a real project that the city really wants their advice on and they feel listened to. And so the, the you know, you get ideas that you think, ah, I don't know if that's going to work, like a roller coaster on a bridge, you know, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> but you know what? You get great ideas too. We did, a, we did one around Washington Park and part of the challenge was is there a statue in this park that you think, you know, no longer represents the city? And is there a statue missing? Um, and we had quite a few, and this was years ago, we had quite a few students say they didn't think Columbus should be there anymore. So, mm. um, which is interesting because it isn't anymore. And and we had quite a few students then come up, you know, teams come up with ideas of people who should be in the park, such as, you know, Queen Latifah or Shaq or, you know, individuals from their lifetime who are, you know, prominent and important new workers. Um, and so it's been really exciting to see the designs. Mm. Of course, 
you get to COVID and you think, okay, what's the worst thing you could do? You know, get a whole bunch of people mixed up together with their hands and Legos, you know, yeah. uh, in small rooms, designing things. So we had to redesign design day. We had to go through our own practice of what, how do we do this? And, um, what we came up with is the design challenge this year. And, um, in some ways, it does what we wanted to do for a while. One of the problems with Design Day is that it's one day, and the kids have a great time, and then they go back to school the next week. Like, okay, that that's over. And we wanted to think of a way to integrate the learnings from it into their schools more so that, like, teachers are taking what they learn from Design Day, and they're integrating it into design challenges in their own schools. And we had limited success with that in the past, but now with this new model, we think it's much more integrated. So... What we've done is we have teams from four cities. So we have teams from Newark, um, New York, Pittsburgh, and Chicago, mm. all middle schools um, where they've selected a team of students from like six to ten students. Um, the teachers, we're calling them fellows. They're, the teachers are meeting with us every other week to get new design tips, to get new skills, to talk about how it's going and give each other ideas on how to engage their students, because of course it's all virtual. Um, and then the students are meeting with their, with their teachers about once a week to work on their designs. We had a big kickoff in October, um, and as you mentioned, the, the challenge is Panasonic, and it's designing a green school. So they got introduced to some concepts. We're um, having the, the teams use Tinkercad, which is computer-aided design. It's, it's you know, the, the high school or middle school version of, of CAD design that you would use as an adult in, in doing real design work. So the students are, are learning how to do Tinkercad, and they're learning how to create 3D models um, that that we would have had them do in person if we could have. Um, so they're working for about, you know, a few months. And then in February, they will present to the judges just like we normally would, but again, virtually. Um, and we, one thing we didn't want to lose, though, was that component of the volunteers because we thought that was one of the most valuable parts is that, again, they're interacting with real people, you know, real professionals who are giving advice. So we still have volunteers embedded in each of the teams. We have volunteers from a variety of companies from, like, Prudential and Port Authority and NJ Transit and Panasonic to um, individual you know, consultants or people that um, just really wanted to do this work, graduates of NJIT and others. So it's been a really fun opportunity for the volunteers to be engaged with the students and the students to keep doing design work, even though it's, you know, virtual. Wow. Um, that's, that's actually really cool. Um, about how many students are going to participate this year? So we have, between the, the four cities, we have about... 60, 70 students um, participating, about 12 teachers, and we have about 20 volunteers. Wow. Um, and you said the, the February is going to be when they present their yeah. final models. Wow. And do yeah, so... Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say they, they will do the presentations in February. The judges will include people from Panasonic, obviously, since they're the client. But we'll probably have other individuals, perhaps some people from some design firms like Gensler or other types of firms that um, are engaged with the work as well. And do students get to work across these cities? Like, are you going to have students that are in Newark working with kids in Chicago or is it you're going to stay internal to the city? Well, we really want to do that because that yeah. was kind of, you know, when we did it in person, the kids were all mixed up. You know, yeah. they'd show up with their group and they're like, okay, we're going to do this. And then we'd say, oh, you're all mixed up in different teams. So like, wait, what? You know, I don't know these kids. And they become best friends by the end of the day. Um, 
it was too difficult logistically to do mm. that in the virtual environment. However, during the kickoff, what we thought was great was, um, you know, the chat was enabled and you had all the students and we had a lot of students on video and they could see each other. And um, once in a while, you'd have a student who was speaking and they'd get nervous. You know, they're like, oh, my God, there's all these people. I don't know. You know, and they'd start to get nervous. And you'd see in the chat all these kids from all over the country going, you've got this. We, we love you. You can do this. You know, and they're supporting each other. And. And I thought, oh, my God, this is great. You know, <laughs> and so we anticipate the same thing will happen during presentations. Presentations are even more nerve wracking because the students are each student has to speak during their presentation and they're doing it in front of like judges and in front of all the other schools. Um, so we anticipate the same thing like that sense of support. And I think that's one of the things I love about middle schoolers. Like they can be the hardest to work with, but at the same time, they're still so loving and caring for each other. And you really see that in this program. Yeah, I, I remember doing these kind of projects in middle school. We had um, so when I was in middle school, the big design project we tried to do for about six months was a 9-11 memorial. So that had just happened my seventh grade year. And there's already a lot of energy around trying to do something around it. And I, I still remember to this day, this project I did in seventh grade, where we had to collaborate in the same way, right around a single project. And the great thing about being a middle schooler is that you are much less inhibited in a way that when you be, when you go into high school, you start gaining these inhibitions. I, I had this personally happen to me, where I was very outgoing as a middle schooler and elementary schooler, but then all of a sudden I hit high school and become much more reserved, mm -hmm. a little more nervous about public speaking. And I think it's because you start learning about all these doubts you start right. having, right? And um, it's great that you guys develop a culture at least around support to yeah. help with that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the kids, the kids are just so great with each other. And so, yeah, even when we were in person, we would see that, you know, even in person, we would see that the students would be looking out at the audience terrified and they'd see their classmate or they'd see another student who's like, you've got this, you know? Um, and it's really, that was something we didn't want to lose. And so we're, we're glad it's still happening even in the virtual environment. Yeah. Um, so I think you sort of touched on this already, but I kind of want to ask about how are you going to adapt the model? Let's say, let's assume the vaccine is very effective. Let's say COVID pretty much disappears with maybe some little residual existence. What does next year's design challenge look like? It, you know, it's a great question. And we've been, we've been talking about it because there are elements of what we're doing right now that we love, um, like being able to engage with different cities. Um, and being able to make this more than just a one-day thing, mm. having the webinars for the teachers and helping the, the teachers over a longer period of time. So we don't want to lose those elements. At the same time, you know, we do think that some of it needs to be in person if we're able to because there's just such an energy when everybody's all together and they're wearing, you know, we have shirts uh, for the different teams with different colors and it's just a really visually exciting and stimulating day. Um, so I think what we're, what we're thinking about and what we're hoping to do in the future is, you know, try to do this uh, regionally. So mm -hmm. have a Newark design challenge, have a Chicago design, you know, whichever cities want to participate. And then, um, and, and those would be over a period of a few weeks or a few months, you know, similar to how we're doing it now, except we would do the kickoff and the, and the presentations in person. And then the teams could work on their own, whether they do it virtually or, you know, in person at their own school sites. Um, but then perhaps in the spring, do a version of it for 
a couple of teams from each city, perhaps, that did really well or want to continue and have more of a national challenge. So like we have now with this national challenge, you know, we could have a similar type of national challenge that every um, city would be interested in. Hmm. You know, I'll mention when Chicago did their first design day a couple of years ago, um, their client was the Obama um, museum and mm. library. And, you know, we thought, uh, and they were very excited about it because it was a portion of the, the grounds that they're designing and they wanted feedback from students on what it should look like and they got some great ideas. And so they they have said to us, you know, we'd be interested in perhaps doing another challenge with you guys. So when we're thinking about what, um, what these national level challenges could be, that's one that comes to mind because, you know, every student knows who Obama was and, um, or is obviously, but who he was to our country and the importance of this of this facility in Chicago. And so I think there's, you know, there's a lot of great opportunity to continue the the national connection for schools. But I do want to get to a point where we can do some of this in person. And that would be, you know, more at the local level. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny is thinking more locally than nationally, but like our guest last week was uh, Tanisha Nash Laird from Symphony Hall. And they're right now doing it maybe a little late now for next year, but they're they're doing RFPs for their, um, re, you know, their sort of updating of Symphony Hall. Right. right. And I keep thinking, ooh, right. design, you know, the design challenge that could be around a Newark institution. Right. Right, mm-hmm. that need, like you said, you already did the um, the 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 bridge across twenty one, mm-hmm. right? And just thinking about how to use the fertile minds of high school students. Yes, and that's it. You know, that's another thing for people listening. You know, we're we're always open to different ideas as far as challenges. So it doesn't have to be a city challenge. It could be a, a facility. You know, it could be a company that's looking to design something that's you know more public facing or. Um, you know, something like that, like a, a, a public um, building that's so important to the history of the city. And, um, you know, what should that look like moving forward? You know, we're really open to different types of ideas. What we found is that the easiest for this project are things that are very physical, mm-hmm. you know, building something, designing something. We did one year where we did an app for the city and like what would that look like and it wasn't we didn't have students actually doing computer coding you know in a one-day program but we had them drawing out on paper you know what would the app look like and how would the pieces you know how would you get from one page in the app to the next um and it was good but it wasn't the same as like when they were physically building a 3d model so Mm -hmm. we we think any types of challenges that involve constructing some kind of 3d image we think are the most powerful in design yeah. day and and you know different students participate each year um so we have had a couple students who have participated in multiple years um but they i've asked them before like oh did you think it was repetitive they're like no oh my god it's a different it's a completely different program each time mm-hmm. even if the challenge is still you know something building related um so. this is my last suggestion but uh, a pedestrian bridge over the passaic would also be a great one <laughs> oh, yeah, i've been dying for a new pedestrian bridge i feel like you know we need to make the city more walking friendly and yeah um, but it's, it's just so cool. Cause it's just like, just like, like right now, me just suggesting these ideas, there's so many things that students oh, yeah. can work on. And it's really cool awesome. that you guys are still doing this, even in a year where it's, you don't have those opportunities to do it with Legos in a room yeah. with, with kids breathing on top of each other. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I will say, you know, we were happy to see that some of our schools have taken these ideas back into their classroom, you know, and that's, that's the mm. ultimate goal for us. Um, and so we've had schools that after participating have done their own design challenges in their schools um, on things related to their, 
to their building. You know, um, we also saw, you know, one of the schools that participated after they did our program, they had their own design challenge to design parklets, you know, those little parking space, you know, where you take a parking space and you put benches and stuff in front of a restaurant and um, the students design parklets for the city. And mm. one of the parklets they designed was actually made into a real parklet in the city. So I think that's, you know, at the end of the day, we, what we've noticed, and, and I'm sure people can understand this, is like when you have a design challenge and it's not based in a real challenge, the kids see through it. They're like, mm-hmm. okay, this is just really busy work, you know. Um, but when, when it's a real challenge, like they know the park and they know that this has to be developed. When a real person, with what they like to call a real person, not one of us, not, not their teacher, but like an outside person in a suit comes up and says, I'm going to treat you like adults. This is what the design challenge is. We need your advice. And then they get to present their ideas in front of the the decision makers on that project. They realize that they're being heard and their voice matters. And I think that's just as important um, because one day when these when these properties are developed, the students can say, I, I did that. You know, that was my idea or I, or none of my ideas were taken. But I remember being listened to for this project. And already, you know, students have been reaching back to us about about Washington Park and, and, you know, how that's becoming Harriet Tubman Square and just the changes happening there. And, and they're seeing some of their ideas reflected in there. You know, w- were those decisions made because of the students in Design Day? Probably not. But their ideas are there and they're being listened to. And I think that's that's a point of pride for students to realize that they are at an age where their voices matter. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is another aspect of this, as I'm listening to you, that makes me really happy is that a lot of design projects are built around the engineering aspect of it. And it seems that you guys are approaching it from the organizational aspect, that what you're trying to impart here is less hard, you know, like, is this a physically capable project? And more about how do you orient students around working together, building a design that actually meets needs as opposed to, you know, is this structurally sound, for example, right? Or right, is this physically right. viable, right? Um, right? Which I think is really cool because I think like oftentimes students are like, you know, they, like they often get this from engineering programs and not necessarily from, mm-hmm. this sounds a little more like a, like a political solution kind of program, which I kind of like about. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think too, the, the decision makers, the engineers and the others who listen, you know, they get so stuck in the, oh, is this feasible? Is that, that they forget to think outside the box or they're not able to think about like, the perspective of a, of a child or a, a family who's using the space. You know, I, I, when I was at Kennedy School, I did a program at the design school, the Harvard Design School, and I remember I'd always be designing, like, I'd be de- designing these plots of land, and my teacher at the design school would be like, well, what's this building? And I'd say, oh, well, that's the community center where, like, the Girl Scouts meet. And she's like, well, how are you going to fund it? And I'm like, I don't know, but it's just, we have to have a community center, you know? And I remember, like, I almost failed that class because hmm. they were like, you're too focused focused on people and I'm like but at the end of the day that's what we're doing like the whole point of this is you want people to use it that you want people to feel like it's theirs you know this is this is our city and our students should be able to you know voice their thoughts too because they're the ones that are going to use it they're the ones that are going to raise families here and 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 want to bring their kids and be able to say to their kids I I had a part in this you know um and I think that ownership's really important but I think I think even if um you know students don't see their ideas used just the fact that they were heard by adults in 
positions of authority is so valuable because, again, I don't think they get a lot of those experiences. And if we can instill that in them at middle school age, then think of the power that brings them when they get to high school and they want to make change in their community or in their schools. I think there's a lot of opportunity for building student confidence and voice earlier on. Yeah, um, I, I want to wish you guys luck with this this year and obviously in your yeah. future years. Um, it's a really exciting thing that you're working on. Um, so I just want to end on our last question, which is, um, what are you excited for in Newark? Yeah, um, I, so I've been living in Newark almost 10 years and um, I... I my whole life I, I wanted to live in Newark. I dreamed of living in Newark because I, I grew up in rural New Jersey, which does exist. And <laughs> I always um, my dad was from Brooklyn. He always talked about the city, and I said, "No, that's your city. My city is Newark. You know, I'm from New Jersey. This is my city." And so um, I've absolutely loved living here. I have no intention of ever leaving, and I I love this city. And I think you know what I'm most hopeful for for our city this year is that hopefully this virus ends and we can go back out and be able to really embrace our city, support businesses, and um, be back to normal. I think I, I never realized how much I took for granted walking down a street mm. and running into people, you know, or, or going into the art galleries or, you know, even my Girl Scout troop, like, we haven't been able to meet in person, and it's such a, a lost opportunity, and I can't wait until we can go back to just meeting um, down in, in Weekwick where we usually meet and, you know, selling Girl Scout cookies at the Dunkin' Donuts on Lions Ave and, you know, just getting life back to a place where we can interact and support each other and be part of a, of a stronger community. And um, that's what I'm most hopeful for uh, for Newark in the near future. Yeah, it's funny. I actually know exactly where that Dunkin' Donuts is. I've been oh, yeah. there. Uh, great business there. And, you know, last year we had to cancel all of the uh, sales. And cookie sales actually start today online and then um, on December 24th. And then we start paper sales in January. So we're hoping to have by, by hopefully April or so we can maybe get back to being in person. But, yeah, I just think there's a lot of those civic um, pieces mm -hmm. of, our, of our community that are missing and I hope we can get back to them soon. Yeah. I, I, on a similar note, I'm also very excited that the vaccine is out. And yeah. it was announced last week that uh, Newark, I think it's, uh, I, I have a bad habit of still calling it UMDNJ, uh, uh, University Hospital, um, Rutgers, Newark, um, is going to be a mega site for vaccine mm -hmm. um, dosing. And um, I hope that will hit. Uh, a 90% vaccination rate, um, hopefully, um, you know, by the end of, of next year. Um, it depends on obviously how many vaccines are out and how much is produced. But if we can hit hot, you know, the 90s, I think we're in a very safe territory. But, you know, there's still a lot of mistrust and distrust in the yeah. city. And I hope we overcome that. Um, but I'm excited for the fact that uh, people are going to start getting vaccines and yeah, um, we'll slowly curb the spread of this disease. Um, so yeah, that's it for this episode. I want to thank our guest, Aaron Sweeney. Um, this is Manny Antunes, host and producer of the Pod and Market podcast, editing and sound engineering by Ba Frey's podcast and logo designed by Robert Conti, additional creative input by Samantha Kateas. We have a Patreon, which you can find on our website if you'd like to support the podcast. We also have some merchandise available for purchase. Uh, the merchandise will be up there soon. If you have a subject you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, please email podandmarket at gmail.com or contact the pod through social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And I'm going to end with a quote from a book called The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Some of you may know, some of you may not. Uh, 
but a very famous author named John Le Carré died last week, and he's a very interesting author because he overturned the genre of spy fiction back in the 60s. Um, what had become dominant was the sort of Ian Fleming, James Bond style of suave tuxedo-wearing spies who, you know, saved the world from complete destruction, um, you know, while drinking a martini. Uh, this is the exact opposite. This is about the bureaucracies that, uh, you know, spies are just bureaucracies and a lot of personal vendettas and a lot of muddy loyalties. Um, and he was excellent about writing about that. And I've had this bit of a tradition of reading a John Le Carré novel around Christmas time. So I read this one last year and I was completely transfixed by the language in it. And so I'm going to read a quote from the beginning chapter, which takes place in uh, on the border of East Berlin and West Berlin. At that moment, Carl seemed to hear sound, sense danger. He glanced over his shoulder, began to pedal furiously, bending low over the handlebars. There was still the lonely sentry on the bridge, and he had turned and was watching Carl. Then, totally unexpected, the searchlights went on, white and brilliant, catching Carl and holding him in their beam like a rabbit in the headlights of a car. There came the seesaw wail of a siren, the sound of orders wildly shouted. In front of Lemus, the two policemen dropped onto their knees, peering through the sandbag slits, deftly flicking the rapid load of their automatic rifles. The East German sentry fired, quite carefully, away from them into his own sector. The first shot seemed to thrust Carl forward, the second to pull him back. Somehow he was still moving, still on the bicycle, passing the sentry, and the sentry was still shooting at him. Then he sagged, rolled to the ground, and they heard quite clearly the clatter of the bike as it fell. Lemus hoped to God he was dead. Thank you.